This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 174 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most popular and influential music artists of the last quarter century, a 45-year-old trailblazer in the world of gangster rap and hip-hop who has received 17 Grammy nominations over the years, thanks to hits like What's My Name, Gin and Juice, and Drop It Like It's Hot, a colorful character who appeals across demographics, and now, in tandem with Martha Stewart of all people, a frontrunner for the Emmy for Outstanding Host for a Reality or Reality Competition Program for their VH1 cooking show, Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party, the incomparable Snoop Dogg. Over the course of our conversation at The Compound, a well-fortified building in Inglewood that's filled with recording studios, screening rooms, a basketball court, ample supplies of marijuana, and just about everything you need to be Snoop Dogg, Snoop and I discuss a wide range of topics. Among them, how a stint in jail at a young age led to him focusing on making music, how audio cassettes of his work wound up bringing him to the attention of Dr. Dre and Death Row Records in the early days of Gangsta Rap, and how his solo career was taking off just as he was facing a murder charge, how, after being found not guilty, he emerged back into society just as hip-hop's East Coast-West Coast rivalry was picking up steam, catching him and his friends in the crosshairs, and how his eventual decision to turn away from gangsta life and towards pimp life, as he calls it, may have saved him, How he has not only survived through the years, but constantly reinvented himself, becoming the king of cool to generations of people spanning the demographic spectrum, most recently as one half of a modern-day odd couple with Stewart, another entertainer who is self-made, has done time, and seems capable only of producing hits, plus much more, from his weed-smoking habits to his favorite munchies, to the name of the only person who's ever outsmoked him, to what he'd like to say to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Donald Trump. So, without further ado... Let's go to that conversation. All right, Snoop, thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Always begin just the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Eastside, Long Beach, California. Raised by a single parent by my mother. A hell of a mother. She worked at a couple of convalescent homes. Mm-hmm. McDonald Douglas, you know, things of that nature. Sure. And just to get out of the way a question that some people might have. How did you end up with the name Snoop? Originally it was Snoop Doggy Dog, I, I know. So what was the, the Snoop part and then the Doggy Dog? You can share how, how that came along. As a kid, I used to watch um, the Peanuts. Yeah. So it was a um, character on there. 
name Snoopy. I liked him. I liked him a whole lot to where my mother said I started to look like him. <laughs> so that she used that. to just call me Snoopy. That's, that's all I ever remember my mother calling me is that. So that was like my nickname. You know, a lot of kids from different neighborhoods had nicknames. Some of us didn't, some of us did. Right. I had a nickname, and it was Snoopy. So... You know, I ran with that for as long as I could, and then when rapping became fashionable in the early 80s, right. I changed my name to Snoop Rock Ski because I like one of the rappers from the Fat Boys, Cool Rock Ski. And then, you know, moving on to, like, late 80s, early 90s, one of my cousins, Terrell, his name was Tate Doggy Dog, mm -hmm. and I liked the Doggy Dog because I felt like that was, you know what I'm saying, representative of who I was. Yeah. So I just slapped that on the back. And, you know. <laughs> How did he feel shit. about that? Shit, I'm his little cousin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no arguing. Come on, man. Yeah. His little cousin shine. Yeah. Well, now, so let's go back before even rap took off. When you were a kid, what was the kind of music you listened to? Who were you into? I listened to a lot of R&B music, old school Marvin Gaye, Isley Brothers, Gap Band, Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, Anita Baker, anything that felt good, Tina Marie. And then once, like I say, once rap kicked in, I was into all of the early rap, whether it was Count Cool Out, Schoolie D, Run DMC, LL Cool J, King T, Mixmaster Spade, Toddy T, The Wrecking Crew, Egyptian Lover. Oh, I can't forget my OG Ice-T. <laughs> right. Well, and because people really suggest that he was the first gangster rapper. Do you agree with that? Ice-T is the original gangster, hands down. Okay. So let's let's go back, though, again, because I read that you sang in church and you even played the piano for a little while, but that there was a moment in sixth grade that was sort of a turning point. What was Super Rhymes? That's the song I was just telling you about the, from Count Cool Out. Super Rhymes was a song that had a lot of personality in it. It was one rapper, but... If you listen to it, it sounded like it was about five or six different rappers on the song because he changed his voice and he had different characters and different styles and he was telling stories and it felt good to my ears and it just felt like it was something that I could gravitate to. Not even trying to do it, but I just liked listening to it. Yeah. And that was like maybe the one of the first songs that made me really like love rap like more than anything. And in sixth grade, did you perform that? You know, we, we would always, back then, nobody knew how to rap, really. Yeah. So we would take the songs of our favorite rappers and put our name in place of their name. So it was like lightweight biting, but <laughs> but it was like practicing on how to be an MC and how to be dope because you was saying somebody else's raps, but you was incorporating your name, so you had to have a little bit of flavor to, to switch it up to make it about you. Right. But when your classmates first heard you sing as early as sixth grade, but then definitely beyond there, from what I understand, you were a hit. Like even going into high school and stuff I was reading, you, you would attract a crowd in the hallway. Yeah. I don't know what it was. It was just shit. When I started doing it, it was like the beginning stages. And I, I didn't think I was that good, but I thought I could be that good. Yeah. Just because I had enough heart to do it. And my thing was, I didn't know how to write. Mm -hmm. You know, not that I didn't know how to write physically, but I didn't know how to write songs right, right. or write my emotions. 
So I would just freestyle. I would say whatever came to, to mind or whatever was the scenario we was in. And that's was, that was one of my advantages that I could rap about right now. Mm. What you got on, mm-hmm. you know, what you, what you look like, what you, you know, what your mama looked like. And, you know what I'm saying? I could go bad on you as opposed to you right. writing a rap about, I got big gold chains and a swimming pool and, and you ain't really got none of that shit. And you just rapping and lying. Right. I basically was more of a freestyler that could win over the crowd. Right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I had the skills of an MC. And I think that being in church taught me that because we did a lot of plays and mm-hmm. things where we had to act out as different characters, whether it was Benjamin Banneker or George Washington Carver, Frederick Douglass, anything that was tied to black history in church, they would make us act out in plays as these different, you know, people in the black community. So we had charisma and, you know, skills and coordination and, you know, the ability to communicate when we was able to do that. It's interesting also, I think, that when you started getting into junior high and high school, you actually were around a pretty diverse group of people, right? Because they, I heard they were, I think you were bussed into a pretty heavily white school in junior high, and then you're going to high school with Cameron Diaz and all kinds, I mean, just some stuff that people might not have known, right? Yeah, I mean, I was raised around people, you mm-hmm. know? I didn't care what color they was and what their mama religion was. I was raised around people. And at one point in time, the Elementary school I was going to had a program where they started to bus kids to a school in Lakewood called Cleveland Elementary. And this was like an elite school where you had to have a certain grade point average and you had to be athletic mm-hmm. because they made us do like physical fitness and we had to compete against each other for the best times and best this and best that. So when they finally selected like the 30 kids out of each class, I was one of the ones selected. Mm. And when I got there, this was the school of a lifetime. It was like they had gymnastics, they had soccer, they had flag football. They even had the YMCA open to them to where we had a swimming course where we would go swimming on certain days in class. Like in the hood, we didn't have none of that shit. So, mm-hmm. And then the people that was there didn't all look like me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was majority white because it was in Lakewood and it was, you know, a school that was catered to the neighborhood. But something about me, I overwhelmed them. I was just like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I just was a cool cat. I was even, it was one point in time where we had a, a riot at school because one of my homeboys had beat up a little kid and then his big brother went to Milliken and he came to school the next day. And my homie was drinking water at the water fountain and the big high school dude walked up to him and he looked at him and his little brother pointed to him and he sprayed my homie with mace. Oh, jeez. And when he did that, when Cuz went back to the, get his face fixed and all that, by lunchtime, everybody that wasn't black was getting their ass beat. <laughs> and it was crazy because the kids that I was cool with was coming to me like, Snoop, save me. Like, save me. So I was protecting kids. I was like, no, nah, y'all can't fuck with him. That's my own boy. Y'all can't fuck with him. And then it got to a certain point to where I had to tell all of my homies, I was like, man, we can't even, we need to stop, Cuz, because they had nothing to do with what, Cuz brother did. So you were the peacemaker? At an early age. Wow. Well, so with that type of a personality and, and positive kind of attitude about all, all this stuff, how do you then end up, though, I guess later in your teens, in gangs, right? Shit, it was right there. It was right outside. All while all this is going on, gangs was right outside. 
And you got to understand that gangs aren't as bad as people make them seem. Gangs are are sometimes brotherhood for people and an escape and a mentorship and showing the homies how to get out of the hood. Mm-hmm. All gangs don't just recruit you to come and be bad. If they see something good in you, they'll keep you out of the gang and they'll protect you and they'll make sure that you make it and become something special out of the hood. So the gangs was what was missing at home. I didn't have no father at the house. Mm-hmm. So I was getting like a big brother or a fatherly figure or just some homies that was older and was showing me shit that my father wasn't there to show me. And my mama definitely couldn't show me how to get no pussy. She couldn't show me how to <laughs> do certain shit that I wanted to do as a young man. So right. I had to go out there and figure it out. And the gang was a cool thing for me because it wasn't just, I didn't join a gang where we just was killing people and robbing. The gang I joined, we was about getting money. Yeah. We like women, yeah, and we like to dress fly, and it was like <laughs> all of those qualities was like it grew me into who I am now. I'm thankful to have been a part of a gang because that taught me leadership, brotherhood, understanding, right from wrong. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it taught me how to be peace. So a byproduct of that, though, there was a downside because by I guess not far out of high school after you graduated, I think you were incarcerated, right? It happens, you know, <laughs> shit happens. You get caught. The police can make a hundred mistakes. Right. A criminal can only make one mistake. And in the end, though, it ended up oddly being a, a positive turning point, right? Because this was, I think, wayside prison. And from what I've read, here's a time when you're you're in there and listening to people's stories around you and doing what with them? Freestyling, rapping and doing the shit that I was doing as a kid. But, you know, rapping was like, Ice Cube was the shit back then. I can't even front. And W.A. had already been the shit, but Ice Cube had went solo. Mm-hmm. So, and DJ Quick was hot as fuck. So, rapping was the thing out here on the West. Mm-hmm. For gangsters to rap. Mm-hmm. Or for people to come from gangbang lifestyles to rap. So, when I was locked up, I was naturally hanging with gang members. So, I would hang out with them. And we would start beating on the bed. And he'd start rapping, I'd start rapping, and then I'd start rapping about their neighborhood and shit going on in their community. And they like, damn, you rapping about shit in my hood and you don't even know me. And you you making that shit up as you go? I'm like, yeah. And i start rapping about the environment we was in. And it got to a point to where the dudes I was in there with was like, you know what I'm saying? You need to really focus on, on rapping, because you hard. You got something. You should, you know, really try to do this and step away from this lifestyle, but try to figure that lifestyle out. So when you got out, I believe it was then that you and Nate Dogg and Warren G teamed up. Is that right? We was always friends, but I believe we decided to team up as a music team because I was cool with Nate Dogg and Warren G. So I brought all of us together based on knowing what Warren G could do and knowing what Nate Dogg could do and knowing what we could do if we was all one. So... It was hindsight, but I didn't really have the sight. I just was fresh out, and I wanted to get with my homies, and we went and made a song called Long Beach is a Motherfucker. Mm-hmm. And that record was like, if it was platinum back then, we was platinum in the hood <laughs> off of a cassette. Yeah, because I was going to say, so you guys were, I guess, as a group, 213, is that what mm-hmm. you called it? And, and this cassette, you're selling out of the trunks of cars, right? Yes. And is it correct that somehow one of those tapes gets to Dre? Warren G. Is Dre's half brother, so he was at a bachelor party that they had, and um, I guess the music had stopped. I wasn't there, mm-hmm. but from what I hear, the music had stopped, and Warren G had popped in the tape with our music on it, and it was rocking. 
and the party was, you know, still moving. <laughs> so Dre inquired, who was it? And Warren G let him know, and then a few days later, I was sitting in front of Dr. Dre, rapping one of the songs that he liked. It was called A Gangster's Life, and he had changed the music to it, but I had did that whole rap. That's awesome. Well, I want to just pause before we go on about the beginning of your collaboration with Dre, because maybe it's helpful to set the scene about what's going on in the world at that point. That was, I guess, just before what happens in 92, which is the L.A. riots, which basically... Unified the Bloods and Crips. You're right. <laughs> and also, See, they but, don't like speaking on the positive shit that it did. They always want to just say it did, but what did it do? It, it unified the Bloods and Crips, and it got a relationship with the Asians and the blacks, which we never had before. But it, you wouldn't say that it was overall a positive thing, would you? I definitely would say overall it was a positive thing because it brought some awareness to a situation that was highly overlooked for years, police brutality, right. and just the judicial system not working for us, so... You know, sometimes you gotta you gotta do things to get people to understand that you know it's gonna be understanding, or we're gonna get some understanding. And I didn't, you know, I was a young dude at the time, so I was actively involved with everything. So that's why I can't be hypocritical and say I don't think it was a good thing. I know it was a good thing because I was a gang member, and I found myself in other gang neighborhoods, peace treaty with gangs that I would have never been able to been at peace with. And it forged a relationship to where when Death Row Records was created, mm -hmm. it was based on Bloods and Crips. And we could get along because we had some understanding based off of that incident that happened while we were creating this process. And you also, I guess, had a common, maybe enemies too strong a word, but common... The police. Right. And At just, that time, it was fuck the police, and it was for real because the police was... That, that Rodney King shit, even a blind man seeing that they was wrong. Right. And they went to they took the jury all the way to Simi Valley mm -hmm. where it was all white jurors of their peers and they found all of them not guilty. How do you find them not guilty? Right. How do you think we was going to react to that? First of all, we've been getting beat like that for hundreds of years with no cameras. And we come to court and they say we, we wrong and that's just that. This time we feel like, OK, they're cameras. So at least, you know, they see the truth. Right. And guess what? A white man filmed it. Right. And they still found him not guilty. So I just look at the results of it all at the end, in which this is now, the relationships that were forged, the buildings that are back up and running, the understanding with the community and how people have a little bit more respect for the culture. Right. Well, so as you say, fuck the police, at least the NWA, you know, song of that idea was before that, back in 88. Now this happens in 92. And meanwhile, so the whole media is now starting to pay attention to gangster rap mm -hmm. and getting a little, a lot of the country, a lot of the white folks who were just learning about it were pretty frightened and not sure what to make of it. And it's into that climate that you and Dre are now first teaming up, right? So in yes. like 93. 91. 90, well, we 91. Deep Cover in 91. The end of 91 was Deep Cover. Okay. Which was a part of that movie. Then we put the. G Thang single out in ninety two and the chronic came out at the end of ninety two. And you wrote nothing but a G Thang, right? Yes, sir. And that had been you'd written that a while back. I wrote that before I went to jail. And so now basically Dre's first solo album is is the Chronic comes out. You're featured on it. There's the the debut song Deep Cover, as you say, and then there's nothing but a G Thang. All this stuff, all of it goes huge. What do you remember 
about that moment in your life when that came out and you were on the map for the first time? All I cared about was putting Dr. Dre on top. Like, my whole energy was to be in the passenger seat and to ride Dr. Dre back to the top of hip-hop, but not just as a producer, as a rapper and a producer, and as a record label. So my focus was on that. So I was never focused on me or tripping off of me or watching what was happening with me. I was so busy trying to make sure that his shit was the shit. But as a result of the popularity of all that, you now are signed with Death Row Records too, right? Mm-hmm. And as a result, in 93, just a year or so after that came out, you've got your own debut album, Doggy Style. And I just want to remind people, this is including the singles What's My Name and Gin and Juice. It blew up, debuted number one, went multi-platinum, made you sort of the face of, of Death Row Records for a little bit there. And I just wonder, at the same time as having that kind of massive overnight success, were you able to enjoy it? Because I think at the same time, you were dealing with some stuff that must have been pretty stressful personally, right? It was difficult, man, trying to, you know, be happy, enjoy it. And my, then my girlfriend at the time, when she became my wife, was pregnant with my first son. So it was like, it was a lot of things that I was going through. And then at the same time, OJ case had, had just popped up and became big news. So it was like some racial injustice was going to happen in some some form of fashion, mm-hmm. whether it was a black man getting all day for something he did or didn't do, which was the case between me and OJ, whether people thought I did it or thought I didn't do it or thought he did or didn't do it. One of y'all finna go up, not both of y'all finna get off. If anything, both of y'all finna go up. That's the way the judicial system worked back then. But for him to win his case and then me to still be in court, I'm thinking to myself like, wow, I guess I'm the odd one out. Because I remember at the time or shortly after that, you were saying you never thought you were getting off for that. Nah, not considering the way his case was and the way my case was, because it was parallel. It was the same hallways. We would be going to court opposite of each other. Johnny Cochran would be flipping from him (laughs) to here. You know what I'm saying? So it was was crazy, man. And it was like I had never been in court before like that. All my cases, I would go to court. They would give me a public defender. He would tell me what the deal is. Look, either you, you can fight it. If you lose, you can go to the penitentiary and get this amount of time. But if you take the deal, you're going to get this amount of time and be out with probation. All right, fuck it. I'll take the deal. Right. And in this case, though, we're talking, if, if I can just note for people that are trying to follow along, this this was accessory you were being accused of. And you did end up. Not no accessory. They charged me with murder. They charged you with murder. Yes. So if it had gone the other way, you were not coming back, right? Yeah, man. It's. And that's a scenario that I really, like, I don't like talking about or because it's a bad, you know what I'm saying? And it's something that if I wish I could change, I could change that day. And that's what people say. Well, what? If it was something you wish you could change, it would be that day. Just that you were August with August 23rd, the, 1993. Yeah. Just, you mean just being with? That whole day. I, yeah. I would just, wouldn't even happen. You know right. what I'm saying? Like being another part of the world or in space somewhere. You know what I'm saying? So that's a bad vibe because somebody lost their life. Right. And, you know, at the same time, the media tried to make it like I glorified that because of my music and the things that I was doing. They tried to make it like I was happy or that I I was never happy. I was sad. I was hurt for that man's family. Right. For him because it shouldn't have ever went there. It should never escalated to that. I felt like the type of person that I am, the peaceful person that I am, a conversation, a few right. words. Right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. 
So when you did get a new lease on life, you get out, you're back in the real world, were you a different person? I made a record called The Dog Father where I just didn't want to be gangster no more. Like, I didn't want to rap about death no more. I didn't want to rap about me going to jail forever. I had a song called Doggy Land mm-hmm. where it was an imaginary song about life and people living forever, no diseases, and everybody getting along. Like, that's where my spirit was at. I was in a different place. I had just been given a second opportunity. And then the people around me didn't really respect it because I was so known for being a gangster and getting in this position. So they wanted me to be John Gotti, the Teflon Don. (laughs) But that was gone. That was. You know what I'm saying? They wanted me to walk around like, yeah, I beat a murder case and I whoop de wop and this and that. But I didn't have that emotion inside of me. And it broke a lot of my friendships because... I strayed away from some of the old ways to be to become who I am today without me having that strength to pull away. I don't think I'd be here today. Right. Well, I want to ask you why you think, because it was, this had started even before that, but why certainly after that were you able to cross over in the sense of, I think white kids, like my generation growing up, loved you as much as black kids. And not that didn't apply to every person who had come up through Gangster Rapper hip-hop or anything. So what was it about you and your music or whatever it was? Why do you have that effect on people? I think when we talked about me being busted at school and me being raised around people and me never looking at people for the color and for anything other than them being people, I mean, I got friends that went to elementary school and junior high school with me that you wouldn't dream that was my friends. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? When you look at him, you be like, hell no, you don't know him. I'd be like, that's my motherfucker right there. That's my nigga. And it, it'd be the whitest dude with glasses on. And he'd be like, yeah, me and Snoop, we used to hang out all the time. And you'd be like, hell no. Yeah, man. For real. Like, because that's how my mother raised me. She raised me to love people. And I feel like the love that I put into my music, that I put into everything that I do is is, is reciprocated. You know what I'm saying? It comes right back to me. Because it's what I put out, you know. Do you think, though, that, I mean, so clearly people who know you love you. But for people who don't know you and are growing up just hearing your music, I wonder if you think it has anything to do with your vocal delivery even. Because I want to read back a quote that you said in a, uh, years ago. Quote, I don't rap. I just talk. I don't like to get all pumped up and rap fast because that ain't me. I want to be able to relax and conversate with my people. It's a distinction between Steven Seagal and Clint Eastwood. Mm. Seagal ain't laid back. Eastwood is, close quote. How did that even become the way you you sing? Was that just the natural way you you ended up doing it, or did you think about it? When I was younger, I used to have like a high-pitched voice, like girlish. (laughs) Like I hear some of the takes when I was a little rapper, and then it got, got a little bit deeper, and then it got like this. Mm-hmm. And then when it got like this, it's just the ability of knowing how to work your vocals, too. Like, not just, I came to the party and I banged it, bang, but, but having, like, the abilities of, putting melodies on it, putting, you know, tones on it and making it fun. When you hear it, you want to sing along to it. You know, your kids love it. Your grandma love it. Your wife love it. You love it. It's that easy to sing along to. There's a generation of kids today who don't really know their, their music history. Some of them don't know who Tupac or Biggie were. Some of them don't know that there was ever a East Coast, West Coast thing. 
Obviously, a lot of them weren't alive for the 95 Source Awards, where I guess it all kind of reached a, a boiling point and, and you spoke out. They just kind of know what was built on top of all of that. And I wonder, as one of the survivors of that period and that particular tension, if you can kind of just briefly explain what that was all about. Why was there this coast-to-coast tension? First of all, there's always a hidden hand in everything that goes down. It is what it is. Realistically, we never had issues with each other as far as East Coast and West Coast because the East Coast birthed hip-hop. They were the creators of hip-hop, the innovators who gave everybody the spirit to do hip-hop. So once hip-hop began to expand and it grew in other regions, such as the West Coast, to where we became dominant, then it became a threat to the forces beyond hip-hop because everybody in hip-hop respected the West. That's why the West became number one, because the East approved it and signed off on it and said, you guys are number one. So to me, I don't like to say the media because I don't believe it's the media. I believe the media is giving information from the hidden hand. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it was all types of things that were created behind that, such as the hip-hop cops, you know, and just little entities to destroy rap from within, to create differences from people who have people around them who are very violent. None of the rappers were violent, but their homies were. Mm -hmm. The communities they come from were. So if you disrespect my homie, you disrespecting my neighborhood. So it becomes an all-out us versus them, as opposed to these two rappers don't even really, they're not really even that mad at each other. You know what I'm saying? But escalation, media, and it sells. Where do you think it began, though? Because I, I just want to ask you about one thing in particular. I don't know if this was the very beginning, but there was a thing where I know Tim Dog, who I guess East Coast sings this sings the song Fuck Compton, mm-hmm. and then on The Chronic, which is, again, you and Dre, you guys come back with the song Fuck With Dre Day and everybody celebrating, which goes after Tim Dog. Who didn't we go after? We stuck to Tim Dog. Yeah. We you didn't say it. your city. Right. Your neighborhood. Right. Your when he said fuck Compton, every motherfucker in Compton wanted to kill him. Right. Bloods and Crips. He united Compton and didn't right. even know that. Right. So it was like, but that's the hidden hand. Right. Because first of all, you disrespecting some people you don't even know so well, what's the point why would it, you even say that but it sells yeah because compton was hot back then they were the number ones like i said the east coast stamped right. and approved it right. but there were people on the east coast who right. didn't approve it right because that was early in the game yeah yeah when, when they was nwa was by the time me and dre came we was on some other shit to where the east coast was like man y'all the shit right we respect y'all y'all number one right we give y'all that so what happened between you and Dre with The Chronic in 93 and then the 95 where it hits that boiling point at the Source Awards and where you said, quote, the East Coast ain't got love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg? Well, if you look at that whole yeah. night, yeah. it was um, a lot of tension in there because at that time, the East Coast didn't get along with the East Coast. Yeah, That was more tension between that than us. So... Things happened that night where people got on stage, said certain things that offended people, and it turned the East Coast versus East Coast versus the East Coast versus Death Row. So me seeing the escalation and seeing where it could go, being from the neighborhood, being a gang member, knowing that 
shit can jump off like that because everybody is tough and everybody got a gun and everybody got something to prove. Right. So somebody got to be man enough to be the leader to say, hey, man, what's happening? Y'all ain't got love for us? Y'all don't fuck with us? We know where we at? Mm-hmm. So it goes back to me being a kid with the riot yeah. that we had in my um, junior high school. Right. It's, it's just another version of that. Instead of making it escalate, you know, we deflate the situation. By the time your second album, Dogfather, came out in 96, a year after that Source Awards where all this happened, the whole scene had changed. Tupac was dead. Suge Knight, who was the guy behind Death Row Records, on his way to jail, right? And Death Row Records was beginning to, I guess, fall apart over the next few years. You were gone by 98. So in those few years after that, how much did the whole scene change the whole experience of being part of that scene change for you said everybody was gone <laughs> dr dre who brought me to death row suge knight who was the business and tupac who it became my best friend and they all was gone and it was no understanding on the way out you know a lot of people don't do business the right way and when his relationship is over you hey have a nice day it's been real a lot of people do business the old-fashioned way you ain't going nowhere you're talking I'm, about... I'm, I'm the master, you the slave. I'm just talking in general. You figure it out. Well, I'll just say, just for the purposes of people listening who may not be They, they going to figure it out. They ain't that dumb. No, okay, okay. <laughs> they going to figure this shit out. I'm just, you know, speaking hypothetically and at the same time speaking theoretically on what I'm talking about, which is the understanding of the music industry is, is certain things that apply that were put here before... Any of us in hip-hop got here. Right. But if you watch these old movies, Cadillac Music, James Brown, Ray Charles, certain people ran the music industry, and they ran it the way they wanted to run it, and they had contractual shit to where you couldn't say or do nothing, they owned you. So certain people had that same mentality once hip-hop became the forefront of music because they felt like this is our opportunity to become the bosses like the bosses were when that era of music was being ran. Except now it wasn't necessarily only the the white guys who were screwing the black guys, right? Exactly. It was the black guys getting the power and being able to have the power and either abuse the power or not distribute the power evenly to where it could become a real business and grow so everybody could feel equal partner-wise as far as what they're doing, putting in work and becoming a part of, of the company equity-wise, not just, right. you know, net-wise. Right. On a lighter note, in, in December 2000, in your song, Snoop Dogg, What's My Name, Part 2, we find the first usage of something that you have become very closely associated with, and that is Izzle. Where did that come from, and why do you why do you love it so much? I don't really love it so much. No? It's come and gone. <laughs> yeah. Like, you got to understand one thing about us in the neighborhood. We always come up with ways to talk. So we can outslick those who listen that don't need to hear what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, so it's more or less like some lingo or some jive talk that starts off in some community, some neighborhood, some backyard, some alley. And then it gets to a rapper who's bigger than the average person who started it. And then it becomes, you know, the lingo. I didn't create it. I'm just one of the people who innovated it because it was around me. It was things that was being said and, and, and illustrated that, you know, was fly that I picked up on and I felt like I can incorporate it. And it maybe started in Northern California? Oh, most definitely. They they definitely were the creators of it. E-40 and the whole 
you know, the whole Kliznik up that way. They was the, the creators of that thing, man. They put it all together. So also around that time, around the turn of the century, you started to change your public persona, your public image a little bit. Instead of the gangster that you had always presented yourself as, now we start seeing you with fur coats and diamond goblets. And I think around that time was also... That's called pimping. Well, I'm getting, I was going to tee that up for you. You got to let me let me finish here. Girls, yeah, It seemed like you didn't know where you was going. Like, oh, yeah, I, you had I a know. goblet, you had a mink coat, and you had bitches around you. Uh, you had a... Yeah, that's called pimping, man. Girls going wild, doggy style. Yeah, all of that. I, I've heard of that, I, I will say. All of it. Shout out to no. my main man, Joe Francis. Yeah, right. But, okay, so what... I hear that that whole change towards pimping, which I am aware of. Righteous. Goes back, does it go back for you to a guy named Bishop Don Magic Juan? He was my spiritual advisor at the time, and he still is. He's one of the greatest pimps to ever pimp. I was always infatuated with pimping as a kid, and my Can wife. Can you define what, what is pimping as, as, all right, I think I know what you mean, and you know what you mean, but for, for those say, who don't yeah. know what pimping is, P-I-M-P, a player into making progress. Mm-hmm. And he's into making progress on all levels of the game. And for those who don't know what game is, game is G-A-M-E, general amount of money earned. So it's more about your hustle, you, the way you look, the way the ladies love you, the way you treat ladies, the way you are, you know how to converse, you know how to, you know, intellectually be on a level with anybody from the bottom to the top. And when you come in, you steal the show because you're the flyest thing in here. You look the part, you play the part. You're wearing fabrics that people can't pronounce. You got some of the wildest animals on your back. You dig? I dig. Matter of fact, shit, Ric Flair was popping this shit off when I was a little kid. You ain't see Ric Flair? I remember Ric Flair was popping this pimp shit long time ago. Right. The diamond, what'd he say? Uh, Rolex wearing. Some, some kissing. Man, Ric Flair was popping, man. Right. Well... You said that period, quote, it actually got me out of the G and into the P, which may have saved my life. Why would that have saved your life going from gangster to play it? Because the gangster lifestyle, a lot of my homies was getting killed because there's only two ends. It's either death or jail Mm -hmm. because there's too much to prove and there's a lot to lose. The pimping lifestyle helped me to want to live and to want to see tomorrow and to want to look good and to want to provide and to want to be here. Gangster attitude, you don't you you ready to die. Yeah, but it's an interesting situation though when you have a wife, right? Yeah, it's an interesting situation, especially when her father was one of the biggest pimps <laughs> in Long Beach. Right. You know, one of the guys I looked up to as a kid. Really? Yeah. So she understood. I mean, not that she understood and was happy and was riding along with it, but I'm a grown ass man. At that time I'm doing what the fuck I want, when I want, and I'm not asking no questions and I'm doing it. But I'm being respectful about it because I'm not being disrespectful. This is just me living out my fantasy. This is something that I've always wanted to do. And for my 35th birthday, to show you how real it is, my wife threw me a birthday party, a player's ball birthday party, just like the player's balls that I had been going to that she had never been a part of. So she threw me one, and we did the exact same thing that we did at those player's balls at this one. And, And on this particular night, Puffy was flying to France or some shit, him and Naomi Campbell and a few other people. And he stopped his plane, came down, and hung out with a real player for his 35th. <laughs> you did? All right, so why then in late 04 did the pimp era come to an end? Pimp era ain't never came to an end. 
It ain't never been on me. It's always been in me. Okay, so what happened in, in 04? You toned it down in 04, right? I mean, just because, like, you got to understand, I'm an entertainer and I'm a professional. So when I feel like the, the, the series needs to take a new direction or the movie needs to have a different climatic, you know, approach or, you know, something ain't interesting enough, it has to change. Right. That's why I've been able to, you know, survive for so long because I find ways to make it interesting and still remain me at all times. For sure. And also, 04, I want to mention, was your single Drop It Like It's Hot featuring Pharrell. Was that your first single to reach number one? Probably. Did that mean a lot to you? Not really. Not really? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you got to look at it like this. Where do I care when, if my first album... Mm -hmm. Only, but, but it was the first album to debut number one right. on pop and this and all them records just did all that Guinness Book of World Records shit and right. then finally get a number one single with Drop It Like It's Hot. I never had no emotions when the Doggy Style record did that because right. I didn't do it for the numbers. I did it for the love and I felt like that was why I was always able to come back and stand the test of time because in this world of hip hop, it's about a two, three album limit and you're done. Mm-hmm. Life expectancy. I'm like a cat, man. I got nine lives. <laughs> so what? can you speculate about why you might be able to withstand time and changes in taste and all of that more than other people? I'm connected. I keep my ear to the streets. I never play the role of being too big or too grown or too much. I actually converted myself from Big Snoop Dogg to Uncle Snoop. And that's the new thing is that the rap generation treats me like I'm their uncle because I've always treated them like my nephews right. and showed them love and respected them and taught them and showed them the right way and never tried to get them in trouble but helped them out and just done that that uncle thing that was never done for us in hip-hop and just took on that role, and it's a respect thing. You know, when I look at you from right here, you look like Jimmy Kimmel like a motherfucker. <laughs> from, just right, from just right here, like... <laughs> I'll take it. Not, not, not like uh, heavy era Jimmy Kimmel. Hopefully. No, like okay. the one right All now, right, like good. skinny. I'll, I appreciate. So it. you're gonna be Jimmy and Skinny Kimmel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, 2012 though. Speaking of, you know, you're talking about being the, the damn. Uncle. You done went from 1991 to 2012, and I'm still here. You say, <laughs> I'm honored. I love it. You're That's why Martha did this with me. She looked it up. She said he's been doing it as long as I have half. Of <laughs> Half of the time I've been doing it. Well, okay, so let's talk about, though, 2012. You, you just mentioned that being like an uncle in hip-hop, gangster, all that. You basically said in 2012 that you were giving up rap for reggae and that you wanted to be known as Snoop Lion, right? I didn't say I was giving it up. I said I, I didn't feel like it was nothing else that I could do in rap, and I've always loved reggae music, and I wanted to venture off and see if I could, you know, go to Jamaica and possibly make a reggae album. And I took Vice, you know, pictures with me. Diplo and Major Lazer were the producers. He brought in a bunch of extraordinary writers. And I went to Jamaica and got baptized in the spirit. And uh, it was a great, great move for me because it, it showed me so much on where I needed to be and it put me in a peaceful place to where I feel like after that is why I'm here now, in a peaceful environment. Was that also, I think you came back from that trip and also said in a few interviews that you were reconsidering the way you were going to, the sort of music you wanted to put out there, not only in terms of the genre of the music, but the lyrics. Like, I guess we, we didn't hear as much about like bitches and hoes after that, right? 
I mean, I still got to go bad on the bitch at all times because it's always all on the bitch, man. But um, I more or less was, you know, making records of understanding because I knew who was listening now. When I was young writing, I didn't know who was listening. I'm like, a kid come up to me, let me have your picture, Snoop Dogg. He's five, six years old. I'm like, damn, does this kid like my music? Right. Maybe I should make something that he can play. Right. You start to feel a little more responsibility. Yeah, and I created a football league in 2005, which drew me closer to the kids, and that helped me get a better understanding on the nourishment that kids need. They like gangster shit, don't get it wrong. Yeah. But you got to mix in some some reality and some, you know, some real teachings, and that's the platform that I've been given. I can do that. I've been, been able to be gangster as I want to be, and I could be as positive as I want to be because that's what I, that's all part of me. Just because you bring up when that all started, I want to ask you, who was Tookie Williams and what was his influence on you in starting that whole chapter of your life? Well, Tookie Williams was one of the original founders of the Crips. Looked at as a bad guy, but he became a good guy. Being incarcerated for so many years, wrongfully accused, he became a great writer, a great motivator for the community. He was a Nobel Peace Prize nominee couple of years from in the penitentiary on death row mm-hmm. so he was making that full 360 turn on correcting his mistakes mm-hmm. and I went to go visit him before they executed him mm-hmm. before Arnold Schwarzenegger had him killed when he could have pulled the plug and said no give him a chance yeah fuck you Arnold bitch but he had a conversation with me and we were sitting in that cell man and this shit was so deep man I'm worried for this man's life, and he's as calm as ever, and he's talking to me. And this is two days before they finna execute him. Mm -hmm. And I ask him, I'm like, man, how are you so like this? And he said, young brother, the word is called sang fra. I'm like, what does that mean? To remain calm under pressure. And when he hit me with that, I was like, oh, my God. Did he also say something? I think you spoke to him again just hours before on the day. Hours before they killed him, man. That that shit hurt my heart, man. I was riding from a movie premiere or something, man. They they called me with him on the phone. And I just was, man. I, it's it's hard trying to talk to somebody they finna kill, man. Oh man, that's terrible. Especially when you see this man making a fool. You turn on trying to correct his mistakes and doing writing, writing books and motivating. And so I said to myself. His death is my life. I'm going to take his teachings and doctrines and bring them to life and continue what he can't by putting kids in positions to do other things than gangbanging. And right now I got eight kids in the NFL. Wow. I got 50 kids in Division One, and I got one Rhodes Scholar right now on his way to London. That's amazing. That's congrats. That's, that's fantastic. Yes, sir. So coming to the ultimate of these examples of there's been a lot of examples of how you reinvented yourself. You figured out a way to adapt and reach new people and make more people love you. That brings us to Martha and Snoop's Potluck, this great reality program that you're a part of now with Martha Stewart. Let's start with when did you first meet her? She had a show that she do. And um, I was a fan. I always loved Martha Stewart. I fuck with her. She was always hood to us. So I asked to be on the show, and she let me come on the show. And 
We cooked a little something. A little mashed potatoes, I think. Yeah, and I took her number. She took mine, and we just, and I would text her, and she, she would be tripping because she would have somebody try to translate what I was saying. Because <laughs> I wasn't texting her on no regular shot. I'd be like, what's happening, Martha? What it do? You know what I'm saying? What it is? You know what I'm talking about? And motherfucker would be like, well, what he's trying to say is, how are you? <laughs> well, why did he say all that? That's how he talks. And then was the next time that you actually saw her at the 2015? No, I did two. I was on her show twice. You were on her show again. A Christmas special I did, too. Okay, so you've had those experiences. Then you both wind up roasting Justin, Justin Bieber. Bieber. and We sat side by side. And, yeah. and what I'm doing with you right now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just casually smoking a blunt or two or three or four and and blowing smoke right in your motherfucking face so you got secondhand smoke, the best I, I, smoke I, I, in the world. I want firsthand smoke. Do Come you? On. Yeah, man. Thanks. <laughs> Indulge. Thank well, that's you. what Martha didn't do. She didn't do firsthand. She did secondhand. And it was so good. Thanks, man. It was so good that when she went up there to do her delivery, she fucking stole the show. Yeah. She stole the show. We all was like, damn, Martha Stewart stole the show. We was like <laughs> impressed. And she was like, I'm high. You know what I'm saying? We was like, okay, well, there it is there then. Maybe you need more of this in your life. (laughs) But long story short, I don't know how this shit happened, but it happened. Somebody created or came up with an idea, and then me and Martha, because we had communication with each other, we communicated, and she was like, did you hear about this? I'm like, yeah, but did you do it? She's like, no, I didn't do it. Did you do it? No, well, we need to meet. (laughs) So then I went to her offices and met with her. Right. And me, her her manager and my manager, and we just sat at the table and we said, this could be a great idea, but it's got to be, it got to have our flavor on it. So I think we should give it a makeover. And that's when we went back to the drawing board and started creating. And then they brought in, you know, Sally Ann, who's a great, you know, producer. I think she also did Jersey Shore, right? Yeah, she, and then, you know, once we brought her in with what we do, like one thing about me and Martha, like we don't really need to be directed and coached because we like live. We really get down. We like to really go. But, it's good to have great material in front of you that you can go to in case you don't have any of your own. So the idea originated from the guy who, Chris McCarthy, was the president, I guess, of MTV, VH1, and Logo. All they knew originally, I guess, was that they wanted a cooking program that would appeal to millennials. Now, what was your background mm-hmm. in what was your background in cooking millennials. before? Well, that's what that's how they said it. But what was your background in cooking before the show? We we know you're good at baking, but what about cooking? And I'm the best cook in my house. <laughs> All right. Like, I grew up, you know, wanting to eat. Right. Mama cooked to a certain age, and she like, you niggas is grown. Y'all better learn how to cook. <laughs> so we had to go in there and figure it out. And then once I was able to get on my own, I like to eat. Right. So I cooked. And then once I got a girlfriend and moved her in with me, I had to show her how to cook because there's certain things I like to eat, and I felt like that was her responsibility. Then when I started making money, I got me a maid. And I taught my maid how to cook the shit I like to eat. You know what I'm saying? So it was like the process goes on and on and on. So now that I'm with Martha now and I'm learning from her, I'm learning a few things. And I'm also teaching her a few things. Can you believe that? Well, I I do believe it. She said that she's learned a lot from you. And I want to ask you, though, for for you, in terms of just agreeing to do the show, you don't need the money. You don't need the fame. So what was the main draw for you? Was it to actually learn how to do this kind of learn. I wanted to be on TV. Yeah? <laughs> no, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, why, why do it? Because you just want to hang out with Martha? I mean, life is good, man, when you're able to enjoy it with people who love enjoying life. Right. 
and she's a survivor. She's a she's a beautiful spirit, and I just love being around her because she teaches me so much on etiquette and you know presentation, just how to be a better person. Like I just I'm thankful to have her as a friend and to have her as a as a companion on television. That's gonna go down in history one day when I'm gone. People gonna look back and say that this is one of the most memorable moments watching. Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart, two people who you wouldn't even expect they get along like the get-along gang. Absolutely. Well, let's just know for people, she's 30 years older than you. She's for a, real? She's, uh, yeah, 30 years older, a woman. She's white, very white. white. She's beautiful, too. But that's, yeah, for sure. Did you see her old pictures when she used to rock the bandage suit? She was a model. She was cold. She had the minks on and shit sitting on the hill. <laughs> she had nothing but bosses. She didn't date no regular motherfucker. You had to have at least a billion. What you, a hundred thousand? Right. If you don't get out of here? Right. <laughs> how many boats you got? You own what? <laughs> All right, so why do you think you two hit it off so much? And is it more like a mother-son or a brother-sister? What? How would you describe the relationship? I think it's everything you just said. Yeah, both? I think it's, yeah, because there's certain times where she's my mother and she's a motherly person. So she has motherly ways, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like a son, so I have son ways, and she's right. like a mother when we're on. And then sometimes it's like sister and brother because it's either me, you know, telling her some things she don't know about this artist that's on the show and yeah. his music and this person and well why is he on the show and he only got one song well Martha that's the only song that's right now he right. got a few hits and it's like you know you're telling your big sister what's going right. on and then I ask her a few things like well why what is so good about truffles what is this well truffles are they're this and they're found by this particular animal he goes out and he digs in the hole well I don't understand all that shit why not just you know so it's like Yin yang. Right. Well, you guys, let's just remind people, some of your guests that you have on your show, you've had Seth Rogen, Ice Cube, Wiz Khalifa, Rick Ross, Chris Bosh, on and on. So I guess, A, how do you pick your guests? B, who's been a lot of fun? And C, you've said they love Martha. Why do hip-hop folks love Martha? I'll start from the back. Yeah. They love Martha because Martha is real. And she 100 and she ain't never played the role of I'm too big for y'all. Mm -hmm. She's been loving and caring towards people in hip-hop for since day one. And if you talk to her and you get her background, she was raised to love people. So it's natural for her. And she grew up in a time where being racist was cool, real cool. But she wasn't raised that way. And that shows with the way she gets down, the way people love being around her, the way she gives, and she gives it off. She gives you love. Look at her age. Her age... Is the same age as Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You see his racist ways? Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with right now. That's the shit that's in him as far as how he was raised. Mm -hmm. If you raised that way, you raised that way. She wasn't raised that way. She's raised to love people and have a kind spirit. She opens her home up. She feeds kids. She does things. She's just a beautiful spirit. Like, that's attractive to me. Yeah. It makes me want to be around that because I want to grow to be her age and to be known for that with somebody who's not from my culture or not from my background to be able to do something with me and say, man, me and Snoop Dogg, we hit it off and you would have never thought just because our spirits are the same, not our color or our background, but our spirit. I want to read you something she said, quote, I like cocktails. I'm actually the cocktail mistress of the Martha and Snoop show. I make up all the cocktails and I feed them to Snoop, who's not really a drinker, so he gets totally drunk off them, close quote. Do you care to uh, respond to those charges? She gets me white boy wasted. 
And I think it's on purpose. Yeah. I know it's on purpose because <laughs> not once has she said, Snoop, would you like me to have you a drink with water down version or I'll have yours up under here? She'll do that for a guest. She'll have a guest drink with some watered down version, but mine's. And it's just, I can't say no. <laughs> it's it's not it's not gentleman like to say no to a lady when she offers you a drink. But you know this begs the question: Do you return the favor by you know inviting her to partake? I may have dropped a few seeds here and there <laughs> in, in some in some recipes and <laughs> some brownies. You did. <laughs> <laughs> but are you aware of her uh, just being like? You know, would she casually smoke with you? No, I don't think so. But I no. think one day once we retire. Yeah. And I pull up on her at her nice home and spend yeah. a couple of days over there and wake her up. She's going to be in the bed sleeping and be like, Martha, hmm. <laughs> wake and bake breakfast. Martha, she, she'd enjoy it. And it's I see her in bed thing. like this. She's going to be like, fuck it. Yeah. This ain't so bad after yeah. all. <laughs> One of the producers of this show is Mary Jane. What is that? Mm, MaryJane.com is a site. And a company that we put together to be like the encyclopedia to marijuana. This is your your enterprise. Yes, sir. It's podcasts, television series, information, dispensaries, strains, reports, segments, all of the above. It's just the the Google of marijuana. <laughs> well, with our with our last two minutes here, I want to do if we can a little thing called rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. I do some shit called Real Nigga Shit, a.k.a. I'm going to ask you some questions and you answer to the best of your ability. Okay. Now, that, I mean, that's the way I do it, but I, Fair I, enough. I, I respect your version. Hey, I, I can't. I respect your version. Thank you, sir. All right. If rap had never come along, what sort of music would you be singing? Rock. When did you first smoke pot and how did you respond to it? 1977. My uncle had a roach on the table with a roach clip and he went out the room and I hit it. How old were you? Six. Yeah. Why do you smoke pot today, and and how often do you smoke? Look how good I look. (laughs) Look how my mind works. Look how I'm on point, and I'm spontaneous, and my answers and everything is flowing. It's true. Look how smooth my skin is. Look how long my hair is. Look at how I breathe. Look at how you understand me, like. And I don't. I don't do no alcohol. I don't smoke no cigarettes. I don't do. No, I just do this right here, and this is the results of it. So, if you want to be like, you understand me? Don't be like Mike. Be like me. <laughs> Has anyone ever outsmoked you? Yes. Who's that? The great Willie Nelson. Okay, he's just had more time to you know build up stamina, right? Uh, he, he 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 fucked me up. We was in Amsterdam on four twenty, like about eight years ago. Right. So we playing dominoes, just like me and you sitting at this table one on one. We playing dominoes. Right. Willie got a vapor right here, joint, blunt, and a bone. <laughs> so we smoke it, playing dominoes. He passed me one, I passed him one. We playing dominoes. We just keep passing. It's like the motherfucking Olympics, like just the marathon. Just keep passing the baton. After a while, I look at him. I say, Willie, let's go get something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, God damn it, boy, you quitting, huh? I said, yeah, that's my easy way out. I got to find a way out because you just ain't going to stop. Well, that leads nicely into the next one. What's your favorite munchie? Mm. Funyuns. Funyuns, okay. Did you ever think you'd live to see the day when pot was legal in large parts of America? Yes. What gets you heated, as in fired up, as in pissed off? I've, I've never even heard you raise your voice, so I want to know, what would piss off Snoop Dogg? Pittsburgh still is playing terrible on Sundays. Okay, all right. Some don't know this, but 
Snoop Dogg is now a grandfather. Yes, sir. What's that like? My grandson is a ball of joy. He be running around and shit. He got, I'm old now. Like, I got hurt one day when he was first learning how to walk. You know, I'm being his grandfather walking behind him and holding him and like trying to let him walk. And then I let him walk. He took like two steps and it looked like he was going to fall, but he didn't. And I fucked around and fell and damn, it hurt my ankle. I was hurt for like three weeks. I was like, man, my shit ain't the way it used to be. Grandpa can't play with you like that, grandson. I'm going to have to wait till you learn how to walk because I can't catch you if you do fall. Right. (laughs) What does it mean to you to have seen the first black president and to have then been invited to the White House in 2013? And that was a beautiful feeling because he was a beautiful person. Mm -hmm. He wasn't just, when you say black president, a lot of people thought that he was going to just be all about blacks. No, he was all about the people. And now we get a chance to see that by looking at what's in there now. Well, that's the next one. To see the difference of somebody who cared about everybody, who shed tears, who was emotional to scenarios that happened. So when people lost their lives, he got up there and he was emotional. And he shed tears and he went to go visiting people and he shared love. And now you you see what you're seeing now. But at the same time, when they allowed me to go to the White House, it was crazy for me because I never thought that I would go in that motherfucker. Mm -hmm. And when I got in there, they welcomed me like the chefs knew who I was, man. (laughs) The the, the butlers knew who I was, man. They, they, They knew who I was, man, like on some like it felt good to be welcome and to really be welcome like. To me, like, to, sometimes I feel like it's bougie affairs that I go to. I'll be like, they don't really want me to be in here. I'm going to leave. Like, they really wanted me to be there. He really was looking forward to meeting me like I was looking forward to meeting him. On my way in here, I saw the photo. That You can't fake that smile. He, man, come he was on, excited. Man, you know what he said to me? He said, man, I didn't know you could dress this shawl. <laughs> I said, look here. Coming to see the Presidente, what you thought I was going to do, man? <laughs> <laughs> me and my lovely wife and my daughter. Right. I came here the right way. You understand me? Representing the right way. Absolutely. Well, okay, so the flip side of that one, you could say anything to Donald Trump right now. What would you say? Man, have some sympathy and some love and compassion and some rationality about everything that you do and say. Because you are a leader, man. You know, whether we like you, dislike you, you are a leader. So we must follow our leader. So please... Lead us into the light and not into the dark. Mm-hmm. Do you think you ever might run for office? See, I don't represent the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I represent the motherfucking gangster party. <laughs> well, they've been waiting for a third party, so that, maybe that's that. it. <laughs> hey, if we can break the mold, <laughs> right. so be it. Okay, 17 Grammy nominations right now. Man. Not yet a win. What Susan the, Lucci. Yeah, what the fuck? Is that something that you would like? That would you know? I know you say you don't do it for the awards, but that would be the one. If there was one award you could have, is that the one in music? Because we're gonna come to the next. <laughs> yeah, because that is the that's the Oscar right of music, right? Right. And you know, I don't feel like me having one solidifies me making it. Right. As much as what I've done to solidify that, I look forward more to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. The Hollywood Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. I look forward to things like that that I know that are within my reach and within the scope of what I've done. The Grammys, I don't know who's voting and who does what, but I appreciate them for the 17 nominations. It's just, it's frustrating when you go that many times and you feel like you've made so many great records that are worthy of 
at least one. And then you don't want to look at nobody else and say, well, how did he get five Grammys? And how did he get four? And his shit wasn't, my shit was better. Than, I don't, I'm not that long out of person. Mm-hmm. But it's been times where I've had a drink or two and I felt like going Kanye West <laughs> and just acting a damn fool and yeah. voicing my opinion. And I might have. But for the most part, I'm, you know, I'm under this marijuana, so I'm cool, right, calm, cool. and collected. The Emmy nomination, though, that must have been pretty exciting. You get to share it with Martha, you're, you're going to the Emmys. Man, now see, this would be crazy. Now, if we fuck around and win an Emmy Before a on Grammy. the first time <laughs> and ne- and never won a Grammy, how the Grammys going to look? And they, they love me. It's just, I guess I haven't got over the hump, but I'm working on a gospel album right now that just may get that nod for <laughs> That's me. like the equivalent of making a Holocaust movie for the Oscars. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> last, last thing here is you're really like, you know, anybody that listens to this, this podcast, I think is going to come away with a reminder of what a survivor you are, how amazing it's been, how, how many times you've been able to reinvent yourself and just always staying relevant and cool. And I guess, is there a secret? If somebody wanted to be like Snoop, what can they do? That's hard because I've, for the past 40-some years, have mastered myself. And I treat myself as like if I was a martial artist. To master self, to master what you are and who you are. And to study yourself and to become great at things you're good at. And to get rid of your flaws and to not make mistakes Two times, Mm -hmm. but just master the creativity of being you. And once you do that, doing you, shit, can't nobody do you like you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.